This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I want to welcome everyone to this Jefferson Lecture for 2015. I'm Harry Shiver. I'm the chair of the committee on the Jefferson Lectures. And it's always a special pleasure to have such extraordinarily distinguished personages as our guests at the campus for these lectures. And today's speaker uh, is certainly in that tradition and of that extraordinary caliber. Um, I'll just begin with a, with a word about the lectures. They are endowed by the Bone Steel family. And as you see in your program, uh, this is a, a series which is uh, dedicated to the subject of American democracy and named as the Jefferson Lectures, uh, appropriately, uh, with that in mind. <clears throat> um, our speaker today, Professor John Witt of Yale, is a, has achieved ex- exceptional renown at a very young age in what seems to be appropriately called now, he'll be embarrassed, a meteoric rise. And uh, he's uh, one of the youngest lecturers I think we've ever had, but certainly as distinguished. Um, I'm an American historian by background, and I do legal history in the law school, and have taught in the undergraduate program. And his work is very exceptional for the way in which uh, it can reach experts on their subject matter who have the highest technical competency, and yet can also reach young undergraduates who are studying the field and can inspire them in a in a very uh, wonderful way that. Uh, permits us as the instructors to take credit for inspiration, but which, of course, is dependent on his work. Um, All of the credentials, as it were, are in your program. Um, Professor Witt has uh, taught at Columbia. He's been at Yale for some years. Um, He's a graduate of Yale College, Yale Law School, and has his Ph.D. from the same uh, institution. So we regard this, among other things, as a liberating experience for him to come out to the West Coast and be with us for a day, a few days. Um, I want to um, just make one more comment about him and then extend some thanks. Um, his uh, work has ranged over a wide um, area of American history and law. In his uh, description sent to our committee, He said he will explore the subject of how American constitutional law was reinvented early 20th century, taking up a small cast of characters who would disrupt the ideological structures of American law. This is very typical of his work. That's a very hard act to put together, to take one of the really biggest and most challenging subjects that you can imagine, ideological change at the macro level in American law, and link it to the realities uh, of personalities and people who uh, made that change in the context of their lives and work. And he's done this with accident tort law uh, for New York State, uh, a subject which actually was one of the old chestnuts of American legal history going back many years. And he gave it completely fresh light and completely fresh perspective and brought out uh, the history of accident law in ways that have been very influential uh, in the years, the short number of years since its publication in the writing of American legal history. He combines tremendous erudition, tremendous scope 
with a human touch and a concern for the human dimension and the social dimension of change in law. And so, uh, more, most recently, he's uh, also written on the law of war, which is a subject that has resonance with everyone uh, and has examined the development of the humanitarian rules that have been proposed uh, for war uh, periods and, and, and also the rules of international law on the subject, which was for Lincoln, a huge subject of the legitimacy of a blockade, and comes down in the global context to very urgent issues of our time in the so-called war on terror and legality and humanity, or lack of it, that's involved in the responses and in the terrorism itself. So he's, he has, as I say, amazing range, amazing perception and insight, and as you will see, by reputation, well known to the historians in the room, uh, he's also a terrific speaker. So, Professor John Witt, welcome to Berkeley, and we look forward to your talk. Thank you, Harry, for that really warm and, uh, uh, and generous introduction. I hope I can live up to some of the, uh, uh, some of the praise that uh, Harry's set a high bar for me with uh, this afternoon. I'd like to thank Harry and, and Jane Scheiber for really giving me a warm welcome uh, to, to Berkeley this week. Uh, thanks to the members of the Jefferson Committee for, uh, for inviting me. Um, and thanks also to Ellen Gobler for putting all this together with aplomb. Thank you, Ellen. This is really a, really a, great, a great treat for me. Uh, what I want to talk about today is a project that I've just begun, just embarked on in the last year or so, and haven't really had a chance to share with anyone yet, and so I'm really glad to get this, this opportunity to talk to you. My talk today is inspired by what might be, as I see it, the most striking feature of our contemporary constitutional culture. The disjuncture between our worship of the, at the altar of the Founding Fathers and the startlingly modern regime of constitutional freedom embodied in our current constitutional values. We now have a world-exceptional First Amendment tradition of free speech, but during the first 140 years of the Republic, the United States Supreme Court never once, never once, uh, applied the First Amendment to protect speech or assembly. We have a bipartisan commitment to civil liberties, at least in principle. But for most of American history, the protections of the Bill of Rights were inapplicable to all but a tiny slice of governmental action. We have a widespread agreement, again, at least in principle, that race discrimination is wrong, not to mention gender discrimination, and maybe now sexual orientation discrimination. But until 1954 and beyond, Separate but equal was the law of the land. Indeed, it's not until a transformation in the Constitution's meaning between the 1920s and the 1950s, a century and a half after the founders were done with their work, and more than a half century after Reconstruction amended it, that the foundational landmarks of our contemporary constitutional order came into view. 
Now, lawyers have a name for this pivot in the nature of modern freedom. We call it the switch in time. And we usually mean the two dramatic terms of the Supreme Court in 1937 and 1938, in which American law switched from protecting rights of property to defending civil liberties and racial equality. It was, in a phrase popularized by Washington journalist Joseph Alsop, the switch in time that saved nine, because the justices changed course just as as Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal Congress were mounting a frontal attack on the antiquated views of the nine-man court. The real story of the switch, however, is much bigger and far deeper. The switch is a product of a transformation in basic ideas about constitutional freedom, not the result of the change in a vote by a particular Supreme Court justice. And today what I want to talk to you about is the formative experience of a man who's not usually counted among the key figures in American constitutional history. Roger Baldwin was not a president. He wasn't a Supreme Court justice. Indeed, he was a public official only briefly and then at the local level. He didn't draft the text of a constitutional amendment, nor was he the charismatic leader of a large social movement, or even a great theorist of freedom, a great intellectual about freedom and its meaning. Instead, Baldwin was a characteristically 20th century figure. He was an organizer of people and an organizer of ideas. He was the principal founder of the American Civil Liberties Movement, And his life and work, I'll argue here today, help us see the roots, see that the roots of the switch lie in a turn in the way Americans thought about public opinion. Let's call it the discovery of ideology, the discovery of ideology. Baldwin was part of a generation that came to see propaganda and the manipulability of public opinion, the connections between power and ideas as among the central problems of modern self-government. A similar discovery ricocheted around the European world at more or less the same time, among figures on both the political right and the political left. And in the U.S., it propelled Baldwin and a generation of reformers and radicals down a kinked path in 20th century thinking about freedom and its meaning. Baldwin spent his career in a self-conscious effort to do battle with ideological orthodoxies, to disrupt systems of thought, to, as he put it, free the people's minds from the bonds of old institutions. And in the process, Baldwin's efforts at at experimental upheaval helped put in place the building blocks for the 20th century's big turn. Roger Nash Baldwin was an American patrician. He was born on January 21st, 1884, the first of seven children in the affluent New England family of Lucy Cushing and Frank Fenno Baldwin. Baldwin liked to say that the family had come over on the inescapable Mayflower. No Baldwins were actually on the Mayflower, but everyone understood the point. Baldwin had attended Harvard, where his matriculation into the class of 1905, he later said, was inevitable. And at Harvard, Roger lived in Westmorley Court along the Gold Coast on Mount Auburn Street, the most exclusive of the buildings, reserved for students wealthy enough to buy their way out of the antiquated rooms in Harvard Yard. And for four years, he attended the proper parties, dined with the best people, attended swanky dances with fellow students like Franklin Roosevelt of the class of Aught Four. As, a, as an adult, he owned gracious townhouses in Greenwich Village, along with weekend and summer homes in western New Jersey, Martha's Vineyard, and Puerto Rico. But Baldwin was also an American radical. 
1918, he was jailed for a year for refusing to comply with the military draft of World War I. In the war's aftermath, he joined the industrial workers of the world, better known as the Wobblies, and worked in the lead mines and brickyards of, of Missouri on a railroad section gang in Illinois and in the steel mills of Pittsburgh. In the great steel strike of 1919, right after World War I, he served as an industrial spy for labor, an experience that nearly got him killed. He consorted with anarchists and communists, ranging from Emma Goldman to Leon Trotsky to Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, later the head of the American Communist Party. In 1927, he would travel to the Soviet Union and come back and write a book praising the communist revolution and forgiving some of its sins uh, relating to political prisoners and the violation of civil liberties. So Baldwin was thus an American type. He was the gentleman radical. And as such, he had a chance to do what few few others ever are able to. He could be a disruptor from inside. Because the startling feature of Baldwin's life is that at a time of red scares and anti-radicalism, his brand of dissent did not lead to his marginalization. To the contrary, Baldwin lived in the vital center of American political life. For 30 years, he served as the director of the ACLU, the organization that established the phrase civil liberties and pushed it into the main currents of American life. After the Second Second World War, General Douglas MacArthur would make Baldwin a close advisor and a cultural ambassador in post-war Japan. In the 1950s and 60s, the Supreme Court under Chief Justice Earl Warren would enshrine many of Baldwin's civil liberties ideas into the Constitution, including values like free speech and equality. And into the 10th decade of his life, he held the respect of presidents, senators, secretaries of state, governors and attorney generals, not to mention leading figures in the world of arts and letters. Yale University awarded him an honorary degree, and President Jimmy Carter awarded him the Presidential Medal of Honor. But what made Baldwin the gentleman, a radical, that he was? He didn't start out that way. He started as a moderate, sometimes even complacent, reformer. If we want to understand the path that Baldwin traveled from the patrician on the metaphorical Mayflower to the main currents of the 20th century, we need to begin with his roots in 19th century New England. And if we want to understand the turn that American constitutional law makes, we need to turn to those roots as well. For there was a method to Baldwin's ceaseless agitation, a theory behind his agitation for agitation. And that method arose out of an early 20th century crisis for a much older debate about how we come to know what we think we know, how we come to know what we think we know. My parents, Baldwin remembered, were liberal Unitarians, and I was a natural product of a suburban Boston community where Unitarians were among the best people. Or we thought so, Baldwin said, with what I'm sure was an irrepressible grin. 19th century Unitarianism for Baldwin summoned an entire moral universe. New England's forbidding Puritan tradition had insisted on the irretrievable depravity of man and the predestination of the soul. But by the early 19th century, a striking new form of liberalism was afoot in New England Protestantism. Among the most vital features of the new departure was a controversy over the politics of knowledge. The debate had crystallized when the most important figure in 19th century Unitarianism, William Ellery Channing, graduated from Harvard College and confronted the problem of slavery. 
Now, Channing, like Baldwin after him, came from a leading New England family. His maternal grandfather was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. But after his father died, Channing and his family lived in a condition of genteel poverty. And so upon his graduation from Harvard in 1798, Channing packed himself off to Richmond, Virginia, to become a paid tutor in the family of a, in a prominent Virginia family. Now, Channing's southern tour occasioned a crisis of conscience. His grandfather had owned slaves in Newport, Rhode Island. His father had freed those slaves after independence while Channing was still a child. And Channing had a powerful moral feeling about slavery. It was wrong, and he knew it was wrong. He felt it in his bones, but he couldn't understand how he knew it was wrong, where his knowledge of its wrongfulness came from. And Channing understood this problem in terms supplied by the English philosopher John Locke. More than a century before, Locke had argued that the human mind does not come pre-programmed with innate ideas, but is more like an empty box or a blank sheet of paper, receiving impressions from the outside world. As Channing well understood, and as many had understood before him, this theory contained the seeds of a crisis. If the mind is an inner record of the sensations of experience, how can we know whether there's any correspondence between the impressions and the supposed originals? How can a person be, be sure that he's separating delusion from reality? And if we cannot know whether our empirical observations are true, how can we have any confidence in our understanding of moral truths. And this wasn't the end of Channing's problem in making sense of, this, of the problem of slavery either. Even assuming that he could tell right from wrong, he still needed to know what it was that made slavery wrong. And looking at slavery in Virginia, Channing quickly concluded that it wasn't poverty or deprivation or even force that was the core of the wrongfulness of slavery, for these were not distinctions, dis, these were not conditions distinctive to slavery. The wrong of slavery, he was sure, was deeper than that. It adhered somehow in the very institution itself. And for 18 months, Channing struggled with this dilemma, living in increasing social isolation in Virginia in the unfamiliar society of slaves and planters. His moral struggles occasioned depression and repeated bouts of illness until at last he hit upon a solution that worked for him. Reading the work of a Welsh nonconformist and moral philosopher named Richard Price, who'd been influenced by the Scottish Enlightenment, Channing encountered an answer to Locke that seemed to him to solve the difficulty. We not only have the Lockean capacity of sensation, Price insisted, but also a faculty of understanding. And following the thinking of 18th century Scots, Price argued that human beings have an internal power that was all by itself a spring of new ideas. Now, Channing called his revelation a doctrine of ideas. Others coined the word psychology to describe the same course of study. French thinkers in the same tradition had given the doctrine a different name. They called it ideology, to denote the science of how we come to have ideas. Members of the American founding generation picked up on this idea. Thomas Jefferson, characteristically enamored of French philosophers, embraced the new term and arranged to have a book on it translated into English and published in 1817 as Elements of Ideology. But whatever it was called, the common denominator was clear. The idea of a moral faculty embedded in the human mind had rescued Channing from his crisis. As Channing put it, Price saved me from Locke's philosophy. But that wasn't all. The very same faculty that gave Channing access to right and wrong 
also explains to him why slavery itself was wrong. It was wrong because it denied slaves the opportunity to exercise their own moral faculties. For the next 40 years, Channing served as pastor to the congregation of the Federal Street Church in Boston. And from his pulpit, Channing translated the moral faculty of the Scots into the language of liberal Protestantism and 19th century reform. Channing's disciples took his ideas in radical directions. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Theodore Parker abandoned Locke's empty box entirely, insisting that no human institution could possibly contain the innate moral capacities in the hearts of men. Parker, for example, followed the inner spark of the divine to radical conclusions, joining the secret committee of abolitionists, helping John Brown prepare for the ill-fated assault on Harper's Ferry that aimed to touch off a slave insurrection across the South. But Channing's ideas about moral capacity did not lead him to insist on the immediate abolition of slavery. The self-evidence of moral truths, he believed, became clear to the human mind only in the right setting. Slavery had cut slaves off from the kind of upbringing needed to foster the moral faculty, and so what Channing sardonically called the school of slavery could never teach men the virtues that freedom required. And so Channing adopted a politics of gradualism. He would work to alter background conditions to gently encourage the capacities of men toward their natural moral benevolence. In the years after Channing's death, Roger Baldwin's grandfather, William H. Baldwin, moved into the minister's handsome mansion on Mount Vernon Street near Boston Common. Grandfather Baldwin's work, as one Boston Brahmin put it, was exactly in line of Channing's dearest hopes. As secretary first of the Freedmen's Aid Society during and immediately following the Civil War, William worked to bring education to the newly free people of the South. And as longtime president of the Boston Young Men's Christian Union, William created an institution that aimed to fan into flame the sparks of the public spirit or humane feeling among the city's youth. Roger's uncle, William Baldwin Jr., carried forward this Unitarian reform tradition. William Jr. was a brilliant manager of railroads. As president of the Long Island Railroad, he lived in the wealthy Locust Valley section of Long Island Island, alongside Morgans and Vanderbilts. But the railroad business also took William Jr., like Channing before him, to the South. And in the 1890s, the railroad man served as president of the Southern Railway Company. There he became a close friend and ally of Booker T. Washington, head of Alabama's Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, and the most influential black man in America at the time. William Jr.'s basic outlook matched nearly perfectly the perspective of the great black educator, Washington had emerged as an influential voice in the black community just as the hopeful era of Reconstruction was closing. In 1895, the same year in which William Jr. became a trustee at Tuskegee, Washington delivered his most famous speech, the Atlanta Compromise speech, at the city's Cotton States and International Exposition. Urging blacks to take up agricultural and industrial labor, Washington promised whites that 8 million African Americans would be a loyal labor force, as loyal as it had been under slavery, willing to work without strikes and labor wars and without the strange tongues of unfamiliar immigrants. Washington promised to set aside the most radical claims to equality of his Reconstruction predecessors. In all things that are purely social, he famously concluded, we can be as separate as the fingers, yet one is the hand in all things essential 
essential to mutual progress. Six months later, in the case of Plessy against Ferguson, the U.S. Supreme Court enshrined a version of Washington's vision of separate races into the law, upholding Jim Crow separate accommodation laws for railroad cars. Justice Henry Billings Brown denied that the, his language, enforced separation of the two races, stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority. Any such effect, he continued, was, quote, solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. Now, for his part, Washington denounced Plessy. He had few illusions about the depths of white racism. But under the dire circumstances of the 1890s, he concluded that a long-term strategy of accommodation held out more promise than aggressive tactics. If blacks could lift themselves up from slavery, white opinion might eventually come around. And in this sense, Plessy fit relatively well with Washington's message of racial uplift. Now, Williams saw things much the same way. His cautiousness matched or exceeded that of the great black educator. And if if given time, if fostered in the right way, the natural moral sensibility of men and women in the South, black and white alike, would gradually express itself. Radical steps, by contrast, might stir up the passions, which would, in turn, interfere with the expression of the moral faculty. I don't think you want a garrison or a Phillips... Washington, uh, um, William Jr. urged to stir up the question of Negro rights. As a child, Roger Baldwin met Booker T. Washington at his uncle's New York home. He played with Washington's children when they were enrolled in private schools in Massachusetts. A teenage Robert, a teenage Roger, sent Washington $20 for Tuskegee's endowment along with an admiring note. He aimed to follow in the footsteps of his grandfather Baldwin and his uncle William. Yet ultimately, Roger would break with the New England reform tradition. Channing's hopeful psychology proved good enough until there was a crisis, and a crisis would soon come. Looking back, Baldwin would later wonder whether he hadn't been born at the worst possible moment for a reformer. In September 1906, A year after graduating from Harvard, Roger Baldwin moved to St. Louis to join the vanguard of a reform movement that was coming to think of itself as progressivism. The essence of Unitarianism, he later wrote in an unfinished autobiography, was doing other people good. And with the encouragement of his father's lawyer, the future Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, Baldwin concluded that progressivism was the distinctively new 20th century way of doing good for others. Baldwin threw himself into reform projects. He served as a social worker in the settlement house known as Self-Culture Hall, organized along the lines of Jane Addams' famous Hull House in Chicago. And many of the children who came through Self-Culture Hall ended up involved in the city's new juvenile court, and so Baldwin became a volunteer probation officer there. Characteristically, within weeks, he'd become the chief probation officer, presiding over a staff and supervising 2,000 children each year. But that wasn't all. He served as secretary of the Civic League. He taught social work in the new sociology department at Washington University. He organized the St. Louis Civic Federation. He founded the National Probation Officers Association. He participated and helped to found early civil rights organizations in St. Louis. It was as if Baldwin gained energy and strength with each additional project. He fed off his work and cut a path through the city's fast-growing reform world. St. Louis was a city caught up in the excitement of a new way of doing good. 
By 1900, St. Louis boasted more than a half million people, making it the fourth largest city in the country. In 1904, it had hosted the Louisiana Purchase Exhibition, visited by nearly 20 million people in seven months. A successful City Beautiful movement had improved streets and buildings. Here seemed to be a city poised on the cusp of realizing the potential of the human faculties. Colonel Edward Butler was a man who saw it differently. Butler was the powerful head of the local Democratic Party. He was an Irish immigrant with a thick brogue and a nose for money. He'd come to St. Louis as a young man in the 1850s. He was a blacksmith by trade, but he expanded into garbage collection and built an empire built on municipal corruption and city contracts. Corrupt backroom deals awarded lucrative prizes, such as city street lighting contracts, natural gas monopolies, and streetcar franchises to wealthy insiders like Butler and his friends. The problem was so pervasive that locals had their own specialized language to describe it. Butler's cabal of political bosses and powerful uh, business interests was the big cinch, and their corruption was the art of the boodle. The ramifications of boodle, wrote muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens in 1904, were so complex, so various, and so far-reaching that one mind could hardly grasp them. Now, for progressives like Baldwin, overthrowing Butler's influence was central to the project of urban reform. Beginning in 1902, even before Baldwin had arrived, an ambitious young district attorney named Joseph Folk decided to stamp out the big cinch and the boodle. And Folk won conviction after conviction. Butler himself was sentenced to three years in prison. The people elected Folk governor of Missouri in 1904, despite the best efforts of the political machine to oppose him. It seemed as if Folk might emerge the victor. My faith in the plain people, Folk wrote his ally Lincoln Steffens, has not been misplaced. And Steffens agreed. The voters of St. Louis and Missouri had proven once and for all that the people can rule. But Folk's successes and Steffens' optimism soon proved illusory. Only eight of Folk's defendants ever served time in jail. Their convictions were reversed on appeal. The others' convictions were reversed on appeal, and Butler never served a day of his sentence. Some suggested that Butler's corrupt power was so deep as to extend even to the furthest reaches of the state's judiciary. Criminal prosecution had proven too crude a tool for prying politics away from the corrupt politicians and their business cronies. Reform-minded politicians, even those armed with indictments, seemed unable to deliver a knockout blow. And what was needed, it seemed, was a better way to run government, a better way to let the people make the basic decisions about their democracy. Now, municipal corruption and the problem of local party machines were hardly limited to St. Louis. Steffens pointed to other cities with the same problem. Chicago, Minneapolis, New York, and Philadelphia chief among them, in Steffens' account. And for more than a decade, reformers had cast about for a way to fight the corruption of government officials and prevent their capture by powerful interests. Beginning in the 1890s, they hit upon what seemed like a brilliant solution— Basic decisions about government could be referred to the people by putting questions on the ballot for direct decision by the voters. Voter initiatives would allow the people to circumvent their agents, the legislators, when those agents, those legislators, had become unresponsive or corrupt. Voter referendums, similarly, would allow the people to approve or overturn the decisions of their elected officials. And in combination, 
the initiative and the referendum would allow democratic public opinion to rule directly rather than through representatives. The aggregated minds of the people themselves would redeem the promise of democracy from the corrupt party machines and the special interests. A small group known as the People's Power League in Newark, New Jersey, was first to organize in support of this remedy in 1892. New leagues popped up in South Dakota and Kansas in 1894. The next year, others joined in Michigan, Colorado, Nebraska, and soon the initiative and referendum process was sweeping the country. Advocates of Henry George's crusade for the single tax were among its most supportive initial backers, but very soon the initiative and the referendum became the quintessential progressive era reform. In 1907, William Jennings Bryan announced his support for them, insisting that they become a part of the Democratic Party national platform. And before long, Bryan was barnstorming through states in special campaign trains advocating for direct democracy reform. Just a few years later, former President Theodore Roosevelt would champion the initiative and the referendum in his ill-fated Bull Moose campaign for the presidency in 1912. By then, California and Oregon were submitting between 20 and 30 different questions each year to the voters. Between 1898 and 1918, 22 states put the initiative and the referendum into their constitutions. And in 1914, voters nationwide took up nearly 300 legislative or constitutional proposals by ballot initiative and referendum. Now, Missouri had enacted the initiative and referendum at the state level in 1908. And as Baldwin saw it, direct democracy would supply the vehicle for realizing the aspirations of men like Stephens. Even more, the initiative and the referendum promised to vindicate Channing's optimistic psychology. Here was a way for the accumulated human faculty of the people to express itself in democratic self-government. St. Louis added relatively limited municipal initiative and referendum provisions in 1911, but as Baldwin worked toward enactment of the city's new direct democracy mechanisms, he made a prescient observation. The advent of of popular government, he wrote, makes imperative the better organization of public opinion. Direct democracy, it seemed, would place new pressures on the shaping and maintenance of ideas, on the shaping of how we come to know what we collectively think we know. St. Louis was a laboratory for public opinion in more ways than one. Joseph Pulitzer, after whom today's prominent journalism prizes are named, had founded the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in the 1870s and pioneered a new basis for the modern newspaper. Instead of a close connection to a, political, to a particular political party, the Post-Dispatch, much like the Hearst newspapers after it, combined sensational crime stories and investigative local reporting with a populist editorial stance aiming against powerful party insiders like Colonel Butler. At the extreme, Pulitzer's sensationalist formula threatened to whip public opinion into a frenzy great enough to change the fate of nations. Many thought the competition between the Pulitzer Papers and the Hearst Papers in New York had been responsible for the Spanish-American War of 1898. And though war and peace were not at issue in St. Louis, at least not yet, democracy was. The editors of the Post-Dispatch opposed the initiative and the referendum. Having helped to create modern public opinion, perhaps they knew just how susceptible it was to manipulation. But like most progressives, Baldwin was considerably more optimistic. 
Once the city's first initiative process was in place in 1911, Baldwin decided to use it to break the interests. He aimed to win voter approval for two measures. First, completion of a free bridge over the Mississippi River, one that would bypass the lone toll bridge controlled for a long time by local railroad interests, and also a new city charter with liberalized initiative and referendum provisions. Baldwin relied on every device known to popularize an issue. He deployed short uh, uh, motion picture shorts. He blasted loudspeakers out of automobiles. He held midday meetings in the congested downtown area, as well as meetings in factories and in public schools. He hired ersatz publicity men and organizers to craft and distribute the campaign's message. It was the first of many publicity campaigns in Baldwin's long career. In the end, Baldwin emerged victorious on both counts. The initiative process, Baldwin crowed, had smashed the obstructive tactics of the interests and won a new bond issue to finance the People's Bridge. St. Louis, Baldwin concluded, was at last a city today where the people rule. The big cinch, he was persuaded, was dead. But then a surprising thing happened. The very first initiative to come before voters under Baldwin's new initiative system turned out not to be a progressive reform at all, but a proposal to mandate racial segregation in St. Louis's neighborhoods. It was one of a handful of moments that Baldwin would later remember as a turning point in his life. Across the country, and especially in cities situated midway between North and South, sentiment was growing for residential segregation laws to manage the increasing number of blacks moving from rural to urban areas in search of work. Baltimore enacted the first such ordinance in 1910. Two North Carolina cities followed the next year. Richmond, Virginia, Atlanta, Georgia, and Greenville, South Carolina added further ordinances the year after that. In 1914, Louisville would enact a residential segregation ordinance as well. In St. Louis, discussions of segregation ordinances began even as the initiative debate got underway. In 1911, white St. Louis residents founded an organization known as the United Welfare Association, which worked with local real estate interests to adopt a mandatory residential segregation plan for the city. Now, Pulitzer's post-dispatch opposed the segregation ordinance, and a large supermajority of the city's aldermen rejected it, too. But public opinion on the issue, white opinion, began to change as European war spurred demand for America's industrial products, and as southern blacks began to move to the city in increased numbers to take work in booming factories. Elsewhere in the country, the initiative process was being put to work for discriminatory purposes. Oklahoma, for example, had adopted its grandfather clause by the initiative. And in St. Louis, the United Welfare Association launched two residential segregation initiatives in 1915. The first proposed to prohibit blacks from moving into blocks 75% occupied by whites. And a compromise alternative would prohibit blacks from moving on to blocks 100% occupied by whites. The association began speaking of a coming Negro invasion of white neighborhoods. How can we afford, the association asked, to let the Negro whip the white man? Now, the city's tiny African-American middle class and its allies tried to fight off the proposals. A hastily formed citizens committee, which included Baldwin, protested that the segregation ordinances were utterly opposed to American traditions and principles. It was, the committee insisted, contrary to the spirit, if not the letter, of constitutional liberty. 
but supporters of the segregation initiatives cited back to them the Supreme Court's decision in Plessy. Legally enforced segregation, they insisted, did not denote inequality or inferiority. Justice Brown had gotten it right when he said that any such construction of segregation was of the black community's own making. The UWA, the United Welfare Association, won out in a landslide as it happened. The vote was 52,000 to 17,000 in favor of Jim Crow, and Baldwin tried to save face. In the long run, he said, the control of the, le- control of the legislation by the people is best for all of us. And yet a new note of uncertainty had crept into Baldwin's voice. Majorities, he mused, might be just as great tyrants as despots. Baldwin's democratic faith, as he put it, had been upset. His thinking about democracy, he realized, had been too simple. Now, as it happened, the fight over segregation and the segregation initiative was not yet over. Segregation was winning in the court of public opinion, but all around the country, the Jim Crow measures faced challenges in the courts of law. In St. Louis, the local federal judge, David Dyer, halted the city's Jim Crow measure pending the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the case involving the Louisville law. The Louisville case was set to be perhaps the most important case on the court's 1915-1916 docket. And when it was argued at the court in April 1916, Louisville's lawyers cited the current racial views of the day, views that had been adopted by the court in Plessy and partially reflected in the accommodationism of Booker T. Washington. The races of the earth, they argued, shall preserve their racial integrity by living socially by themselves. The court in Plessy had insisted that black Americans were themselves to blame, and so too the lawyers in the Louisville litigation now snarled, the shiftless, the improvident, the ignorant, and the criminal carry their moral and economic condition with them wherever they go. People in neighborhoods they did not like had only themselves to blame. Now, cities around the country waited and watched, many of them planning to enact their own segregation ordinances if the court upheld Louisville's. In November, 17, in November of 1917, after a delay arising out of election year politics and transitions in the court's membership, including the appointment to the court of Louis Brandeis, the Baldwin family's old friend, the court unanimously struck down the Louisville provision. Judge Dyer followed suit and struck down the voice of the people of St. Louis. And Baldwin, for one, was grateful. In St. Louis, however, it was too little too late. Across the river, where the new free bridge touched down, the same economic forces that had caused blacks to move to St. Louis now led them to the sister city of East St. Louis, and tensions quickly emerged. The city's white central trades and labor union spoke of the growing menace of undesirable Negroes. And in May of 1917, an angry meeting of striking white employees at the Aluminum Ore Company devolved into two days of looting by roving gangs who ransacked black-owned buildings and smashed the windows of homes in the black district. A full-scale race riot ensued in July when 6,000 whites marched in downtown East St. Louis to demand the expulsion of blacks from the city. By early afternoon, the crowd had begun to pull black men from streetcars and beat them, And as evening set in, the rioters moved into the black districts with torches, guns, and ropes. One white reporter wrote that blacks were shot down by mobs as they fled from their homes, which the whites had set on fire. More than one horrified witness reported a startling deliberateness to the killings, and the post-dispatch reported a manhunt conducted on a sporting basis. When all was said and done, 
the white mob killed between 100 and 200 black men, women, and children. Property damage to the black section of East St. Louis amounted to as much as $3 million. And at first, Baldwin tried to blame the same industrial interests that had controlled bridges over the river. If the people of East St. Louis really controlled their government democratically, he insisted utterly implausibly, the recent outrages would have been impossible. But he gave no reason to think that this was so. The brilliant civil rights advocate and scholar W.E.B. Du Bois grasped much better what had just happened in the city. Du Bois understood all too well how deeply the sentiments of white working men and women were involved in East St. Louis atrocities. In East St. Louis, Du Bois wrote bitterly, white labor unions had conquered liberty. Du Bois understood another thing, too. In democracy, the power of majority sentiment would powerfully shape the conduct of public officials. And when the local United States attorney reported back to Washington, D.C. that there were ample grounds for an investigation by the Justice Department, Attorney General Thomas Gregory and and President Woodrow Wilson himself concluded that nothing in the episode warranted federal action. And in so concluding, there was little doubt that the Wilson administration believed it acted consistently with the dominant public opinion. East St. Louis was the worst in a sequence of urban race riots, beginning with Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, running through Atlanta in 1906, and Springfield, Illinois in 1908. And with each new riot, Booker T. Washington's uh, model of racial uplift came under greater and greater pressure. The moral faculty of the white mind, it seemed, turned out not to be progressing, even slowly progressing, toward an accommodation of black economic equality, just the opposite. Public opinion among whites had turned violent and angry, and in the wake of the Springfield riot, Du Bois and others had decided to establish a new civil rights organization to defend the race, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Washington, meanwhile, entered a steep decline, In 1915, he died, spared the sight of his strategy's demise in the embers of East St. Louis. The East St. Louis crisis also undid the worldview shaped so powerfully by men like Channing, Grandfather Baldwin, and Uncle William. These men had taught young Roger that individuals had within themselves the capacity to grasp moral truths, to distinguish virtue from vice. Booker T. Washington had taken this advice as confirmation of the conciliatory racial strategy of Tuskegee, and Roger had seized on it too, adapting it to the progressive reforms of the initiative and the referendum. The double blows of 1916 and 1917 threw Baldwin's confidence in the moral sensibility of the people into into disarray. When he had arrived in St. Louis, he later reflected, reform had looked all too simple. Direct appeal to the people seemed the very perfection of democracy. But by the summer of 1917, democracy seemed to require something, something more. Roger Baldwin was no philosopher. He was an activist, not a theorist or an intellectual. He said so himself time and time again. But his actions were mobilized around a lived philosophy. And his experiences of 1915 to 1917 required the rejection of the optimistic psychology of Channing. The dynamics of public opinion in St. Louis suggested that the minds of men and women did not come to know empirical or moral truths unmediated. The aggregation of those individual minds in public opinion was pervasively subject to social power, demagoguery, propaganda, and manipulation. People picked up ideas 
ready-made in pre-manufactured chunks. Pulitzer's newspapers could shape it, so could concerted campaigns like that of the railroad interests or the United Welfare Association. So could Colonel Edward Butler, if he were so inclined. Public sentiment was manufactured in the process of fiercely fought political campaigns, like the campaigns for the Free Bridge, or for the segregation ordinance, or for the initiative and referendum processes themselves. In this respect, Baldwin and some of his contemporaries inverted Channing's thinking. French philosophes and American founders like Jefferson had first applied the term ideology to describe the study of the way our mental faculties recognized self-evident truths. This was what Channing had described as his doctrine of ideas. Baldwin's generation had rediscovered ideology and redeployed it to describe a very different but newly salient phenomenon, the way in which politics, not innate ideas, shape knowledge, and the way in which power calcifies ideas into orthodoxies, making up more or less tight systems of interconnected ideas, both empirical and moral. Now, the suggestion that there was a crisis of confidence in public opinion and a discovery of power in manipulation and propaganda around World War I is not itself news to those familiar with the history of the Great War. But Baldwin's experience tells us some interesting new things. For one, it changes some dates. It suggests that even before U.S. entry into World War I, the crisis of public opinion was already underway for a generation of would-be progressives. To be sure, for Baldwin and his entire generation of reformers, the onset of war sharpened the point at the very least. In the middle of 1917, Baldwin left St. Louis to join the New York-based staff of the American Union Against Militarism. There, he led a quixotic campaign to turn public opinion against militarism and against the war. He used all the tricks he had learned in his fight for the initiative and the referendum, and even more. But the forces arrayed on the other side, the government's propaganda arm, the Committee on Public Information, and its 75,000 four-minute men giving speeches around the country the sensationalist press, the loyalty leagues, the patriotic organizations, all proved far stronger. Whatever was left of the peaceful and hopeful era of reform, Baldwin later wrote, gave way before the shock of the war. Now, the war delivered a similar shock around the European world. In England, the popular intellectual Norman Angel had predicted the end of armed conflict on the eve of the modern world's most terrible war. And he worried that the public mind had proven vulnerable to what he called optical illusions. In Italy, a Marxist named Antonio Gramsci developed a later later influential theory of the hegemonic function of ideology, of the capacity of ideology to shape and even control public opinion. In the United States, Walter Lippmann cemented his role as a leading public intellectual by developing many of the same points. In a complex world of second-hand observations, Lippmann observed, citizens relied on what he called stereotypes, ready-made pictures of the world supplied by newspapers, the movies, and purveyors of information by any number of mechanisms. Now, Lippmann's diagnosis, like Angel's and Gramsci's, offered a powerful critique of one of the leading progressive ideas to come out of the war. Theorists of the First Amendment in American democracy, men like Zachariah Chafee at Harvard Law School, where Oliver Wendell Holmes on the U.S. Supreme Court argued that free speech was about the discovery of truth through unmediated public deliberation 
or the free marketplace of ideas. But if Lippmann was right, there was little hope for public deliberation among citizens whose only access to information about the issues at stake was secondhand information supplied by the manufacturers of public opinion. There was no free market in ideas. There was only a rigged marketplace in propaganda. Baldwin shared Lippmann's critique. By the 1920s, echoing Lippmann, Baldwin viewed the phantom public, echoing a title of Lippmann's uh, great 1920s book, as a powerful hindrance to robust, rational deliberation on public issues. But Lippmann's prescription of government by experts who might stand above the the distribution of secondhand information, uh, um, uh, but Baldwin disagreed with, with Lippmann's prescription. Baldwin believed that the experts were just as likely to be captured by orthodoxies and ideologies, and perhaps even more so. For Baldwin, then, the discovery of ideology, the discovery of Lippmann's stereotypes or Gramsci's hegemony, led him to redouble the commitments he developed in St. Louis. Commitments to engage in and win the struggle for the hearts and minds of public opinion, not merely to protect the integrity of the process, as the leading First Amendment scholars of the 1920s would have done. We can see this best if we look at Baldwin's founding not of the ACLU in the wake of the war, but his founding of a lesser-known organization, the American Fund for Public Service, or the American Fund, or Garland Fund, as it was variously known. The Garland Fund began when the scion of a Wall Street investment banking fortune named Charles Garland refused his inheritance on the grounds that he opposed private property and hadn't earned it in any event. Garland's refusal of his inheritance attracted attention across the country, Baldwin knew the family through Harvard connections and instantly saw the opportunity to finance his efforts at ideological struggle. A persuasive Baldwin convinced Garland to give the fortune to Baldwin to donate to liberal and left organizations that would join the fight against orthodoxy. The Garland Fund, rather than the ACLU, turned out in some ways to be a better guide to the project with which Baldwin and a generation of post-war reformers and radicals entered the 1920s. Alongside the new head of the NAACP, James Weldon Johnson, and a rotating group of others, Baldwin entered into a decade and a half long project to disrupt ideological orthodoxies, to finance social experimentation, and to subsidize upheaval. The Garland Fund did ideological battle to stir up the forces that threatened to stultify the minds of men. Sometimes this meant attacking the kinds of racial groupthink that had produced segregation ordinances and race riots. The Garland Fund financed the defense of black peons in Arkansas. It paid for Clarence Darrow to defend the black doctor Ossian Sweet and his family when they shot and killed a white man on their front lawn, a white man who was part of a mob set on evicting them from their new home in a white neighborhood. It paid for lawyers assisting the Scottsboro Boys beginning in 1931. At other times, this commitment to ideological disruption meant the defense of radicals, dissenters, and heretics of all kinds. Baldwin's Garland Fund quietly financed a decade-long campaign to free Sacco and Vanzetti, Italian anarchists accused of a robbery gone bad in Massachusetts. It funded the Scopes Monkey Trial that pitted Clarence Darrow against William Jennings Bryan in Tennessee. It paid for creative communication campaigns in labor strikes. It supported the litigation of the first generation of modern free speech cases in the 1920s. Anything to push back against the reigning orthodoxies of the age. Now, if we had longer, 
I would set out an extended argument for the proposition that Baldwin's rediscovery of ideology, his discovery of the structure and logic of public opinion, would turn out to be at the very heart of the new civil liberties and civil rights constitutionalism of the switch in time in the middle of the 20th century. Now, maybe we can resume tomorrow around the same time. I, I, I'd love to keep talking about it. Maybe Harry can invite me back some other time. Um, uh, um, suffice it to say for now that in 1930, the Garland Fund made an investment that paid off immensely, the results of which we're all familiar with, unless, even if we're less familiar with its origins. For the Garland Fund spent the last big chunk of its money in a gift to the NAACP to finance a blueprint for what eventually became Brown against Board of Education. Men like Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall, the great figures in the NAACP of the 1930s, developed their litigation campaign with Garland Fund money, which paid for litigating the first generation of modern desegregation cases on the road to Brown. Here was the end of the Booker T. Washington strategy of accommodation to Jim Crow and the end, eventually, of Plessy against Ferguson. But all of this, and here is the important point for us today, rested on a reevaluation of the dynamics and logics of public opinion and the adoption of a distinctive way of engaging that problem, one that brought civil rights and civil liberties together, one that emphasized experiment and disruption, made a decisive break with the past, and set the country's path toward a switch in time that now defines the constitutional values we hold dearest. Baldwin's story, I'd like to think, is appropriate for a Jefferson lecture. Not only was Jefferson fascinated with the problem of ideology, as I've described, he, like Baldwin, famously believed that democracy required regular agitation. God forbid, he wrote in 1787, we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. Baldwin's work is also distinctively appropriate to the early 21st century. The 1920s have powerful resonances today in our own culture of inequality. And the difficulty for us is that attractive ideals with powerful constituencies seem wrapped up in the problem. Think about things like the culture of the modern meritocracy, itself a product, at least in part, of the switch in time we're describing. Our own continuing controversies and crises also point to the limits of Baldwin's lived ideas. He fought for agitation and upheaval, but to what end? A commitment to disruption doesn't seem to entail any particular project. Today, the idea of disruption sometimes seems to have been captured by the profits of tech innovation or carried forward by the disruptive politics of the Koch brothers, those 21st century right-leaning versions of the less left-leaning Garland Fund a century ago. As it turns out, this question, to what end disruption, was the question that animated the next 30 years of Roger Baldwin's life. And that's the next chapter of Roger Baldwin's extraordinary story. Thank you. I hope to share that with you one day as well. So thank you very much. How would you say that uh, the American understanding of the notion of equality changed in this period of the switch that you're describing? Well, I think that um, one of the central transformations we see in the move from the world of Plessy against Ferguson to the world of Brown against Board of Education is the introduction of a substantive conception of inequality. So the world of Plessy against Ferguson is the world in which Justice Brown says, I see formal equality here, and if you imagine 
some form of subordination, well, that's just your own construction. And what Brown does is Brown says, no, 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 this formal inequality, we'll look through it and we'll see through to the substantive inequality that exists beneath it. And that, that's a project that connects up Brown to the New Deal, to the labor projects uh, that Baldwin and others pushed for uh, during the 20s uh, and, and, and the 30s. So I, I'd say that's, the, that's the, the central move in inequality thinking in that period, is the move from, from formal to substantive. Now, we still live in a world in which that battle between formal and substantive uh, visions of inequality is a, is a live one. Um, and, and that the conversation continues. I don't mean to suggest that there's a decisive transformation that's the end of the story. But that's what I would see as the key equality piece of the switch in, um, uh, in, this, in this moment. Thank you for coming and speaking. Um, who would you say in contemporary political life and contemporary activism most echoes Baldwin? Uh, great, great question. Uh, um, the question is, who, who, who in contemporary political life most echoes Baldwin? I'd say there are any number of figures, and I'd say they're on right and left. I was serious when I described the Koch brothers. That is, that's a, a, a group of people who've self-consciously taken it upon themselves to disrupt the basic structures of American political life. It, it, I think if one wanted to do the second half of the 20th century story, it would be a story in significant part about the right which has pioneered a politics, I'm thinking now to Goldwater through Reagan, a politics of disruption, of undoing the basic structures of what we might call a kind of New Deal consensus that comes into place after the, um, after the, after the switch. And what that does is it highlights the fact that disruption for disruption's sake is an open-ended project. Uh, and this is why Baldwin will struggle through the middle part of his life with whether or not he's in the First Amendment for the First Amendment's sake or in the First Amendment for the project of substantive equality or for some other kind of social project. It, it raised that question and put it on the, on, the, on the front burner. There are, of course, figures on the left as well. My inclination is to think they've been less effective in my lifetime than the figures on the right um, uh, in, in engaging in this kind of disruptive change that gathers... Uh, uh, momentum and creates constituencies. But so I, I think it's in our life, in my lifetime, it's largely a story on on, uh, on, on the right. Although, of course, I mean, actually, you know, the, the last, it's been such a fast move uh, uh, in, the, in the public uh, uh, eye, anyway. The story is about, about um, uh, gay marriage and the project of equality for sexual orientation. This is an extraordinarily fast uh, transformation, one that Baldwin would have admired immensely for its capacity to organize resources and deploy them very effectively. Thank you. John, your, your work has engaged with history in numerous different styles. Uh, I wonder, now that you're engaging in biography, what that experience is like. Uh, how does it assist the writing of your history? How does it inhibit it? Um, well, it does. It does both, absolutely. So, so um, uh, I have 
for this project in mind to add further characters to the story. You already saw the way in which I integrated a number of characters other than Baldwin into the story. Um, and the Garland Fund has a board of directors which consists of a group of people. Uh, and I have imagine for when this is all comes together, if it ever comes together, that it's a group biography of these, of these people's lives intersecting. And my hope is that that will allow me to take advantage of some of the virtues of biography while skirting or minimizing, never being able to eliminate, but minimizing some of the risks. So the, the virtues of the biographical, I think, are that they let me get into the depths of the human experience to describe it in all of its rich detail and not to skip over things in the, in the service of aggregates and masses and, and, and the social. I also would like to think that I can tell stories that get people to keep paying attention that there's something in the biographical that captures the attention of a readership and allows you to make arguments that resonate because people's lives, individuals' lives, are comprehensible. Now, this does, though, produce real methodological limits, conceivably, if by making that strategic move to tell stories, I cut myself off from certain kinds of, of explanatory, explanatory moves. And so my hope is that by bringing multiple people to the table, I can uh, resolve some of that. But it's not the first time that, I, that I've done this. I mean, it can't be the case that anyone other than my mother and Chris Tomlins knows the, the variety of pieces that I've written... Uh, <laughs> um, but, 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 um, but if you think of the last book I wrote, which is organized around uh, uh, the history of the laws of war in the United States, there's a core character that, that, who is the hinge character who makes the thing work, a man named Francis Lieber in the midst of the American Civil War. And at any number of times, I've found a real pull to move to the biographical, to find individuals, um, whether it's a random upstate or an obscure upstate judge in New York in 1911, uh, or, um, or someone like, like Roger Baldwin. I, there's, a, there's a pull. I, mean, I think I, I, uh, I could continue to theorize about it, but it's just something that inevitably comes to me. It's just temperamental. I, I, I want to see history through, through individuals, aware that that may cause some limits, and so I try to, try to accommodate for that. Thank you for the speech. Uh, one consequence that came out of progressivism and the New Deal movement was a very large regulatory state. And I'm wondering whether Baldwin and other thinkers like him anticipated this and, uh, well, what they would think of it right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, great, uh, a great question. Um, uh, the folks, folks like Baldwin, as Professor Tomlins knows better than anyone, find themselves in the funny position of resisting the New Deal state in the middle of the 1930s. So Baldwin and the ACLU will oppose the Wagner Act at first and then relatively quickly come around to it and feel a little foolish for having done so. But they'll oppose the Wagner Act because they're worried about uh, the encroaching size of the state. They've been fighting against the state since at least the World War I period. Um, uh, and so they have a complicated relationship uh, to, to, the, uh, to the New Deal order at, at, the very, at the very least. On the other hand, you know, folks like James Weldon Johnson and the NAACP, although suspicious of the way in which the state may not entertain their claims, has understood from at the very least the beginnings of the, his anti-lynching efforts at the end of the 1910s that the state is necessary to accomplish the kinds of goals that they want to accomplish. And so I, th I think this group has a complicated and a multivalent relationship uh, to the regulatory state from, uh, from the beginning. What, what then, I think, happens once the New Deal state is up and running, uh, as, as it were, is that it then becomes part of the 
construction of orthodoxies and consensuses, which these sorts of folks want to disrupt and want to engage and undo. And so um, they both want to use the state, and then they're also aware of the risks that it poses in the production of knowledge and the production of ideas about, uh, about, about politics, which they want to resist. Thank you very much for a most interesting talk. Um, to what extent do you think that the con increasing concentration of economic wealth has captured the political life of this country? And if you think it has, or is in the process of doing that, can that be changed? Well, this is part of what um, makes this project interesting to me right now. And I think there are parallels between the 1920s and our own, and our own moment. This is a Baldwin and his closest allies are people who look at the world of the 1920s and can't quite believe that there, isn't, that there aren't the political resources to begin to address it. And so their project in the Garland Fund and, and other, in other efforts is to, in some sense, go deep and begin to seed the the world of politics for transformative for transformative change, um, and I so I think it's really quite uh, quite applicable uh, to today. We can see all sorts of, of ways in which uh, the production of ideas by elite universities and the like are bound up in the culture of inequality, the meritocracy that we hold dear. Many of us in, uh, in elite higher education are the products of a meritocratic culture, and yet that too seems to be part of the production of an inequality crisis. So our ideals are now bound up in the very problem we're trying to solve, and it's that, that uh, a tight connection between our ideals and the politics of the problem that suggests to me a kind of ideological problem that requires disruption in much the same way that Baldwin and his allies aim to disrupt the ideological systems, the networks of thought of the, 19, of the 1920s. I hope that's responsive. I'm going to take the chair's prerogative to ask you a question. Uh, you talked about the disillusionment that came with the East St. Louis riots and the fact that the um, initiative had proven to be a weapon in the hands of people of great prejudice. Um, another disillusioning um, event must have been Theodore Roosevelt, who had championed the initiative referendum and recalled judges and other things that Roger Baldwin and Lucille Milner and some of these other people of that period admired. Then he became the spark plug of the pro-war preparedness movement. You mentioned the anti-militarism, and I just wonder whether you could just comment on the importance of Roosevelt's shift. I mean, that brings you back, your focus back to mainstream national politics, but it has a fallout in several ways. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's true. But Baldwin himself was a, uh, was a Woodrow Wilson voter in 1912, so it wasn't necessarily a disillusioning moment that, his, that a great progressive hope for him was, uh, was lost to this alternative. But for many, uh, it, 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 it would have been. Um, and it's certainly true that the way in which popu the populations of Western countries readily sign up for war in World War I is, is a huge blow to progressive optimism. Uh, and it, it cries out for an ideological explanation, for an explanation of how it is that people come to hold the systems of ideas that they hold. Uh, and so in that way, the, the experience of World War I, not just in the United States, but also uh, for, um, for European observers, really confirms this basic problem. 
problem of thinking about structures of ideas, ideologies constructed around either nation-state affiliation or uh, economic position uh, become central to the thinking of this, of this generation and help propel them into the kinds of things that we're familiar with in thinking about constitutional values, whether it's free speech, whether it's civil liberties, uh, or eventually uh, race equality in a, new, in a new kind of way. Please join me in expressing tremendous appreciation for this very fine lecture. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.